So we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 this morning. Um, We've we got some contextual work to do again like we did last week, and so I would encourage you to open a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's, it's page 877 in the Bibles in the chairs. If you don't have your own Bible at all, that Bible is consider it yours. Take it home with you. Read it. Uh, we believe fully in the Word of God, and we believe it's the Word that works. Uh, it, it will radically transform the way you perceive things. It will tra- change your life. And so we would encourage you, if you don't have, your Bible, have a Bible, to take that one as your own. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, uh, as you're kind of getting settled in there, let me just kind of set this up. So last week I made the case that we all have a desire for justice. We may not agree together about what that means in the end. Like, we may not agree what that justice is. We may not agree um, how to achieve justice. Uh, but I think this is kind of a universal desire in the world. Now, I don't have any stats. It's not like I can prove this to you from a scientific perspective, like I went out and found a bunch of studies about our desire for justice. But I think if you just look around at the, the headlines of the day, the, the ways that people are kind of crying out in the world today, it's always looking for wrongs to be righted. They want people to, to experience justice, and they want uh, 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 evils to end. They want suffering, what's perceived to be undeserved suffering, especially to cease. They want people to get what we have this desire, this sense that we, we want people to get what we think they deserve. This is a place, this is a universal perspective. It's a place where we can meet people outside the church. This is not just a Christian perspective. We saw it in the text last week, but, it, but it's not, uh, it, not an um, exclusively Christian desire. But ultimately, I, I think we can all agree that it is something we desire. But what happens? What happens when the accusations and, and the, the wrongdoings, what happens when all of what is deserved is not pointed at someone else, but it's turned in on you? So last week I made the point out of the text that sometimes, whether we like to admit it or not, we're like the adversary in Jesus' parable. We're, like, we're the one who sins against other people. Sometimes we're the unjust judge who doesn't act, even though we have power and influence to act, but we don't act until we just have to and when it's in our own best interest. And that in and of itself is an injustice against someone. What happens when we cry for justice, but then all of a sudden the the injustice is, is perpetrated by you and by me? Do we still cry for justice? I think our cry, I think our desire changes from a, from a call for justice to a desire for mercy. The sad truth that Jesus addresses next, and kind of in this context, in this stream of teaching, is that many people are not going to enjoy the benefits of his justice. Many people will not uh, enjoy the benefits of his kingdom being completed in all of its perfect glory. Many people will not enjoy the benefits of Jesus' kingdom coming in finality. Not because those blessings weren't available, but because they refused them. They refused to admit their guilt and call for his mercy. And as we work through the text today, let me just kind of set this out so that you'll hear it now and then we, I think you'll see it unfold in front of you. As we work through the text today, I want you to be able to walk away with really four, four pieces of information. I hope, I hope, I've been praying that each of us leaves here recognizing our own need for God's mercy. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to put us there because I want to lay some heavy guilt on you. I mean, I've been walking with this. I'm already I've already been all week long, for weeks now, actually been measuring this against myself. But I want us to recognize our need for mercy because it's there that we can begin to understand that we can receive the mercy that is available. And I want you to walk away today having understood your need for it, then being able to realize that it is available to us. And then I want you to be able to walk away knowing how. 
Like, how do I avail myself of this? How do I receive this mercy that has been made available that I so desperately need? And maybe one fourth piece of information that I'd like you to walk away with is, is how do you help others see that this mercy is available and, and, and how can they take hold of it? How can they avail themselves of it? So Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who were trusted in them. Who, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his, up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Luke opens this section. Uh, he, he transitions from the previous parable that we just studied in, in, in 1 through 9. He transitions from the previous parable to this one without really a scene change or a change of circumstances. There's, there's no indication that Jesus is now in some other place with some other people talking to, to, to some other instance. In fact, as you look at this, this, this seems to be one stream of thought or one, one idea building upon itself to another. The one thing that changes is the audience. The one thing that changes is who Jesus is speaking to. We see that in Luke's editorial comment in verse 9. He also told this parable. In addition to the parable he just told, and the teaching that he was speaking about in 17, 20 through 37, he told this parable to some who were righteous, or, or to some who trusted in themselves as righteous and treated others with contempt. And you put that all together, and we can begin to see that this, this parable is a confrontation. It, it, it's, it's a confrontation and a warning. And, and just a side note, this is, not, this is extra... It's not part of the sermon, but I'd like you to hear it because as we've walked through this, back in chapter 17, 20 through 37, he's speaking first to the Pharisees, then to his disciples. As 18 opens, he's again speaking to his disciples, making promises of this blessing that comes when justice comes. And now he's speaking not to his disciples, but in a very generic way, he's speaking to all these people, any of whom, could it be his disciples, it could be Pharisees, it could be Sadducees, it could be, it could be people who, who are none of those things, standing in this crowd who look at themselves as righteous. The thing I want you to get is, is who we speak to determines what we say. It determines the prom, promises we make. I come here on Sunday morning and I speak to you as the church with hopes of exposing the teaching of Christ, not just to the church, but to anyone who would walk in our door. But when I walk out on the street, I don't have the same conversations with people. On the, I don't preach them sermons like, like I come and preach to you on Sunday. It's a different thing. And Jesus is, is, is employing new language and he's challenging people where they need to be challenged so that they can hear his grace and his mercy. I just know that and recognize it. And, and in your practice, I think it makes sense for us to follow it. Know our audience. Once we know our audience, we know how to speak. We know what to speak. And that's what Jesus does. So he's driving home this, this idea. He's driving home this warning. He's, he's pressing in and confronting people at the point of need. People who think themselves righteous and, and hold others in contempt. But I want you to see how this all works together before we get uh, too deep into it. 
because I think it'll make more sense for you. Luke 17, 20 through 37, we've already looked back. Matt taught on it a few weeks ago, painted a picture of the beautiful, better kingdom that our better, beautiful king is coming to establish. And, and, and we talked about it last week that there's this kingdom that has come. It's, it, it, it has come. It was in their midst, but now in some way is coming. We talked about the work he had to do before it could come. We talked about the fact that this is, it, it's been done, and now we're living in this time of until it comes. And he says, until it comes, life is just going to keep on ticking by. Clock's going to keep ticking. People are going to continue to do the things that they do. You're going to wake up in the morning. You're going to go to work. You're going to... Uh, 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 earn your paycheck, you're going to come home, you're going to take care of your house, you're going to look for some entertainment, you're going to lay your head down, you're going to go to bed. The next day, the same thing's going to happen. You're going to get up, you're going to go to work, you're going to earn your paycheck, you're going to come home, you're going to take care of things around the house, you're going to lay your head down, maybe look for some entertainment, you're going to lay your head down and then take, uh, go to sleep. There's this process, and until his kingdom comes, that is going to continue. And his call, his warning at that point for his disciples was, until it comes, don't look back. Don't turn back to the old way of life. Don't turn around and walk away from what you've been walking towards. Don't turn back. What he states there in the negative, he then states in the positive in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 18. He tells a parable then teaching his people. What he said before is don't look back. And then he, he basically tells them this parable to positively, positively tell them, since you're not looking back, keep praying and keep not losing heart. The way we said it last week was pray and persevere. Keep praying, keep persevering, don't quit. What he said in the negative was don't look back, don't do that. What he said in the positive is do this, keep praying and persevering, and in that, he gives them this command. He builds out this perspective to, to, to give them this command to, to pray and not lose heart, but he doesn't just give them a command. He tells them why they should do it. Because when God comes and establishes his kingdom, when God comes and his kingdom is completed in all of its perfected glory, the way we said it last week, when, when Jesus comes and his kingdom is consummated, he will bring justice. And that sounds like a beautiful message because we all desire justice. We're looking for justice. We want people, we want wrongs righted. We want evil to end. We want undeserved suffering to cease. We long for that. Every one of us long for that. But again, Jesus doesn't quit teaching. When he moves into verse 9 in, in this chapter, and, and again, this, these chapters and verses are here for our reference. They weren't here. He didn't take a pause and say, okay, new topic, new subject. In his mind, he's still talking about the coming kingdom and the justice that comes with it. But the tone changes and the audience now changes because the promise is not for his disciples. The warning is for anyone who would view themselves through a self-righteous perspective, anyone that would look on anyone else with contempt. He warns them. He confronts them. And he does it through the telling of this parable. He tells them this parable of a, of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And in that day, everybody would have been on the side of the Pharisee. They would have, they'd have been, all right, man, the Pharisee going up to pray, yeah. Tax collector going to pray, that doesn't happen. We don't even let them close to the temple. But in fact, as the parable plays out, one man goes home justified. Justified just simply means that he's innocent in God's sight, that he is no longer guilty for his sins. He's no longer considered unrighteous. He is innocent in the sight of God. One man goes home justified and the other 
doesn't. One man is humble in his standing before God, who God then exalts to a position of sinlessness. And one man is exalted in his own sight, who God then humiliates. Jesus is warning these self-righteous people of his coming kingdom and of his coming justice. Because the justice that Jesus brings with his kingdom is good news for the repentant sinner, but not the self-righteous saint. See, we talk about the good news We talk a lot about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Jesus went around preaching the good news of the kingdom. But the point he's making in this parable is that the kingdom is not going to be good news for everyone. The kingdom, not everyone is going to celebrate the coming of Jesus' kingdom. Not everyone is going to benefit from, from God bringing justice and righting all wrongs. Instead... Instead, there are going to be a number of people who get exactly what they deserve. And and I don't want you to hear Jesus standing up on some soapbox as a a pharisaical uh, 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 fire and brimstone kind of preacher. He loves people enough. He cares so desperately for the destiny of these people, where they're headed, that he would tell them the truth. God, establishing justice in the world is not a justice based on your standard or my standard or anyone else's standard, but his. When Jesus comes and brings justice, what we're saying is he is coming to establish a kingdom in which he will not be rebelled against, where no one will stand in opposition to him. We will all be submissive under him. We will all be uh, obedient to his authority. He is coming to establish a kingdom in which there is no sin or the fruits of that sin. I mean, when we talk about Revelation 21, we, we love Revelation 21 in a day when Jesus comes and wipes away every tear and death is no more and he's in our presence. Oh, what a beautiful picture that paints for us. What a beautiful eternity that paints for us. But what happens to those people who have viewed themselves through self-righteous eyes and looked on others with contempt. I mentioned this at the end of last week's sermon. I think it bears repeating here again. When Jesus brings justice, everyone receives justice in one of two ways. First, in judgment. We could call it condemnation. This is the unrepentant sinner, the unbelieving Person, the person who has not confessed their sin and admitted that they need Christ or trusted in Jesus' work on the cross in their place for their sin and his resurrection as the only way that they can overcome death and receive life. They, they have not trusted him. This kind of judgment, this condemnation, God has every right to offer it because everyone has sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And so when he comes and establishes justice, there will be many people that will endure judgment. That will get exactly what they deserve. But there's another way that we can perceive and receive this justice. In the cross. In terms of today, we would talk about it as mercy. This is where the repentant and believing person, the person who has confessed their sin and sought to live for God, the person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as as their salvation, as, as their vicarious sacrifice. Jesus died in our place for our sin, then rose again on the third day, defeating death and putting aside all of its fruits and, and, and all of its condemnation. And he says, It is yours. Well, we can either be judged. Or we can gain mercy. This is the point that Jesus is driving home. This is the point that Jesus cares too much to walk away from this conversation 
and not say. And he does it through two contrasting men, two contrasting views of themselves, two contrasting prayers, and two contrasting uh, destinies, two contrasting realities of what they go off into. Jesus warns and confronts because the justice that he brings is good news for the repentant sinner, but not for the self-righteous saint. The irony of ironies is that no one would have expected the outcome. I mean, this is, this is, M. Night Shyamalan would be like drooling over this twist ending. It, it's a twist of twilight zone uh, 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 size. You know, I mean, this is huge. This is shocking. The culture that Jesus lived in, they would have seen the Pharisee and they would have been cheering him on. They would have assumed that the Pharisee had every right to pray what he prayed. They would have assumed he had every right to walk into the temple and stand in the place of prominence. They would have looked at the Pharisee and thought, what a holy man is he? They would have been, they would have been jealous of him. I wish I could be that holy. If I could just be more like the Pharisee. But they would have looked at the tax collector and they would have thought, who in the world is he? And they didn't, they didn't accept the, 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 the tax collector. They wouldn't accept their testimony in courts. They wouldn't allow them in the, in the temple. They thought they were the lowest of the low. They were the scum of the earth. The, the Pharisees were prominent in society. The, the Pharisees were the worst of the worst. In current terms, in, in current perspectives, the Pharisee, you could look at this a couple of different ways. The Pharisee in church culture would be that person who's there at church, at every event, at every outreach. Every time the doors are open, that person's here. They sign up for every team. They follow all the religious protocol. When we call at the end to take communion and remember... Jesus' sacrifice on our part or on our behalf. Remember the resurrection and the promise that he's coming again. They're up and at it. What we can't see in the Pharisee is that there is a dead heart beating inside that person. And they're looking at themselves and thinking, look at all the holy things I do. God's certain to think I'm a good person because of look at all the good things I do. In broader cultural terms, that's another way we could look at it, and this, is, I think, would, would fit kind of the, the stage of the world. In broader cultural terms, it's that social justice warrior that's on all the right sides of all the right causes. You know the one that every time some new headline, their, their Facebook feed or their Facebook profile picture even follows the news cycles. And every time the news media comes out with the next horrific thing we've done to some other group of people, which is happening all over the world at every moment. There's things happening in horrific, sinful, detestable ways right now that you and I don't even know about. But as soon as we find out, man, that social justice warrior, they've got their profile pic with a filter over it that says, I stand by whatever. Hashtag end it. I'm putting memes on their Facebook feed. Punch a Nazi because they deserve it, right? They're on all the right sides of the social justice efforts. And they look at those people who don't agree with them And their heart is filled with hate. That says something about them. You can do the same thing with the tax collector, put it into more contemporary terms. In church terms, the tax collector would be the person who doesn't show up regularly. Who doesn't, who doesn't give enough money? Who doesn't serve on enough teams? Who doesn't do enough to measure up to someone's standard? That person has probably never been on a trip to Senegal. Probably never talked to their neighbor about Jesus. 
And in fact, they live in all of the unacceptably sinful ways. You know, like in church culture, we have these sins that we consider acceptable. Gluttony. Oh, come on now. I'm just feasting. There's a time to feast, but it's not every day. There's things that we have determined are really not that bad. And we accept them of one another. But there's some sins. Oh, man, there's some truly detestable sins that we just can't stand in God's church. It's none of the ones I commit, though, right? That's the thing. If you need to know the list, I can show you my list and and we can all be together. I hope you know I'm being facetious. In case you don't get the sarcasm. In in broader cultural terms, the tax collector would be drug dealers. You know, those people that we all agree are evil. Drug dealers, pimps, the Nazi white supremacist racist, child molesters, cheating spouses, deadbeat dads, or anyone else we determine is contemptible. Anyone else that our popular culture view of the day determines is of little worth. Here's the thing. They all prove to be sinful. Our sin can either be pride and arrogance because in some way we think we measure up to God's standard. Or our sin can be as obvious as a tax collector who by his own people are hated. The point Jesus wants us to see is that we all need mercy. We all need mercy. We are all sinners. I am a sinner. I don't deserve to stand on a stage and tell anyone about our God. I don't deserve to be able to speak to anyone about the goodness and glory and majesty of a God who's bringing a kingdom that will make all things right because I don't deserve it. And neither do you. We all need mercy. Whether we like it or not, whether we think this is true about us or not. We all need mercy. And just in case you're thinking, who is he to talk to me that way? That's exactly what a Pharisee would say. We all need mercy. But here's the good news. Mercy is available. Mercy has been provided So I think the question, I mean, oh gosh, the question, how then do I get this mercy? How can I receive God's just mercy rather than his just judgment? How can I be one who benefits from his justice being established on the world? How can I enjoy this? How can I celebrate it? How can I get this? I think as we look at this parable, we can see, we can see five things that just come up out of it. And we see it in the contrast between these two men and their prayers. We weep, first we weep over sin rather than minimize it. The Pharisee walks in, moves right up to the position of prominence, kind of separates himself off the text, it says. If you look at it, then he stands unto himself and he begins to pray, God, I thank you. That's actually a good way to start prayer. It's not a bad way to start prayer, but, 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 but what happens is then he begins to brag on himself. I thank you that I'm not this way and I am this way. I thank you. Look at who I am, God. I'm just so grateful that this is who I am. I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't think it's wrong for us to be grateful to God for who he makes us to be. But there's no indication that this guy sees God making him to be anything. This guy is who he is because just that's who he is. He may have at one time looked and thought, oh, I need God's mercy, but now look at me. I've attained this position. Thank you, God, 
that I don't do these horrific things. And he lists this list. And thank you, God, that I do all these good things. Thank you that I'm not like other people. He sets himself off all by himself, completely minimizing his own sin. In contrast to a tax collector who couldn't even come close, who couldn't lift his eyes, and who beat his chest. He is grieved over his sin. We, we live in a world we don't, we don't want anyone to experience this kind of grief. This is where it starts. You want to know why I painted a picture that's so stark and, and puts you in a place where maybe, I don't intend to be just offensive, but puts you in a place where, where if, if you argue with me, you're arguing against the scriptures and, and you have to deal with the fact that you're a sinner. You want to know why I do that? Well, why I did it here? Because until we are grieved by our sin, we will do nothing about it. He is grieved by his sin. He's beating his chest. He, he, he's not ecstatic. He's not celebrating. He's not, he's not ignoring it. He's not trying to sweep it under the rug and, and, and push it aside. He's not trying to work in such a way that diminishes all the external perspectives of it. He's simply grieved. The beating of the chest, that was, this, that was an indication of grief in that day. And it actually still happens in in Eastern cultures, the, the, it's actually more prominent among women. And, and if you see a man beating his chest, it's typically because the grief is so heavy. It's just the way it works. One other time it's in the Bible is, 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 is as, as a result of, um, I'm going to forget it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's as a result, I think, of Jesus' death that they beat their chests. I'll look it up and put it on realm. Sorry. It's just a, piece of information floating around in my head. They beat their chest because they were so grieved. This is huge. This is not some, some small act. He is grieved by the reality of his sin. But he doesn't just wallow in his grief, does he? He actually does something about it. Like he is grieved by his sin. He stays at a, I mean, this is what moves him. The grief over his sin is what moves him to the temple to say this prayer. It brings us to the second idea, I think, of what we should be doing or how we take hold of this mercy, how we receive this mercy. We confess our sin rather than deny it. The Pharisee doesn't even mention any of his own sin. He didn't say one word about his own sin. He didn't say anything. All he did was paint a picture of himself as one who should be exalted. Like, here, here I am. Look at how good I am. If you don't believe me, I'll work harder and I'll prove you wrong. It's a tax collector grieved by his sin, moves to pray, won't even approach the temple, won't even, or won't come close to the temple, won't lift his eyes to heaven, beats his chest, and he calls himself a sinner. Literally, in the text, though, he doesn't just say a sinner among sinners. He calls himself the sinner. Like he is the one, the worst of the worst. You know who you, you know you know who the worst sinner in the room is. The one you who you know all of their sins. You know who that is. Do you know all my sins? Probably not. Whose sin do you know most? The Pharisee isn't looking at other people and saying, glad I'm not like that guy. He recognizes the depths of depravity in his own heart. He says, have mercy on me, the sinner. He confesses. This is the idea. This is the idea. This, this is the thing. We all need mercy. Every last one of us need mercy. There's none of us who don't. This is not just my opinion. It's the perspective the Bible presents. 
Isaiah 64, 6, he is praying and pleading with God to rend the heavens and come down and make his presence known in Israel. Isaiah says this, we have all become like one who is unclean. All of God's people, all of Israel have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. They are all sinful, he says. But you've probably heard this and I don't want to just say this to be crass or crude. Our, our um, translators have been polite with us. The, 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 the wording there in the Hebrew refers to polluted garments or filthy rags. That, that refers to minstrel rags. Used minstrel rags. All our righteous deeds are like used Minstrel rags, the best thing I can do and offer to you, God, is like a minstrel rag. That's not something we're going to wrap up and put in a box and present it with a bow on it. It is absolutely unacceptable to give as a gift. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, Paul turns this and says, look, he sets this example in front of the whole Philippian church. And really now for any of us that read this letter. When he, when he was outside of Christ, he, and he, he was like, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I was the man. I had it all going for me. I obeyed the law and I persecuted the church. I was holy in my own sight. I was blameless in my own sight. And then he turns around in this passage and says, wait a minute, all of that gain, all that I had going for me in my life before Christ, I count as loss. In fact, I count it as rubbish. And again, our trans translators are polite with us. The complete word study dictionary defines the original Greek that's translated rubbish in this way. That which is thrown to the dogs, dregs, refuse, what is thrown away as worthless, spoken of of the refuse of grain, chaff, or of a table of slaughtered animals of dung. So they didn't choose a word that's not able to be translated as rubbish. But they cho he chose a word that has such a strong connotation to it that it's as if we're standing on a heap of dung and we are bagging it up and saying, God, here is our righteousness. We need his mercy. Because we are like the Pharisee and because we are like the tax collector. The question is, will we weep over our sin? And will we confess our sin? And then third, will we ask for God's mercy instead of ignoring the need for it? The Pharisee, he didn't ask. In fact, he wouldn't even admit he needed it. He didn't act like he had a problem. But the tax collector knew. The tax collector understood it. And so he says, be merciful to me. And this is, a, this is another concept. We need to understand this in terms of the gospel and the work that God has done. He's not just saying, give me mercy. He's saying, give me mercy, but there's, it's, it's a bigger concept. There's a bigger perspective. What he's saying is, be propitious toward me. Offer a propitiation for me. And we don't use that word. It's not like we walk around. Some, sometimes people do, right? Like they want to show off about their vocabulary and doctrinal theological terms. And they said, oh, Jesus is a propitiation for us. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Oh, I don't know, but it, I, I saw it somewhere once. Propitiation. Listen, here's the, the, the definition. We're going to talk about this. 
I'll illustrate it out for you. Propitiation, a sacrifice so complete that one's disposition is changed from anger to favor. It's, it's making a sacrifice that appeases someone's anger so that they're no longer angry with you, but they're, they're, they're good towards you. And this is depicted in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, on the Day of Atonement. The priest would approach, he would slaughter, he would kill a bill, a bill. He would sacrifice a bull to atone for himself and his family. <laughs> Sorry. That's what happens when I start speaking too fast. My, my mind's moving, my mouth's not. He would sacrifice a bull on behalf of himself and his family. So the priest is a sinner, so something's got to be done for that. So he's got to go. He's got to purify this stuff. He's got to atone for himself and his family. So he sacrifices a bull. And then after that happens, then he's ready to, to make an atonement for the people of Israel. And the way they did that, and you can read about it in Leviticus 16, the way they did that is they'd bring two goats. He'd cast lots over the goats, and one goat would be chosen by lot, one, one, one goat would be chosen to be sacrificed and one goat would be chosen to be prayed over and sent away. The idea is the goat that was chosen to be sacrificed would be, would be killed, his blood would be sprinkled around, offering uh, uh, a sacrifice to God so God would no longer be angry. God would be propitious or his anger would be turned. It would be appeased. The other goat, the, the priest would lay both his hands on the goat and uh, he, would be, he would confess the sins of Israel over the goat and they would send that goat away. That's called expiation. That's not necessarily what's depicted in our passage in the New Testament, but that's the other half of it. So you have the propitiation, the, the sacrifice that appeases anger, and you have expiation, the sending away of sin or the removal of sin from their presence. Maybe a more contemporary example that maybe will be a little clearer for you to see is in the movie King Kong. Right? They offer up the lady to Kong. The, 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 the native people offer up the lady to Kong so that Kong doesn't eat them. He eats the lady, right? So they, Kong won't be angry towards us. He'll leave us alone, but he'll eat her. We're happy with that. He'll be propitious towards us, right? We, we, we won't receive bad from him. So that's the idea. That's what this guy's asking for. Make a sacrifice on my behalf that's so complete that you don't have anger towards me anymore, but you feel compassion upon me so that you feel good towards me so that you work to my benefit and I receive blessing rather than condemnation. This guy understands what he deserves, but he's begging for something totally different. And he recognizes that it's not just simply you're going to be swept in the rug. There has to be a sacrifice. Make a sacrifice for me. That's exactly where he is. And the beautiful thing of the story is that he's the one that's justified. The one that, that grieved over his sin. The one that, that, that confessed his sin. The one that pled for mercy. This is exactly what Mary was talking about when she sang her song before Jesus was born. This is exactly what she's talking about when she says it's his mercy is for those who fear him. This man feared God. He understood God's power and what he deserved from God. And he pled with mercy from God. And he received it. But Jesus gives us our fourth perspective. Live humbly, not arrogantly. He says that the, the, the Pharisee approaches the throne with, with this arrogance and pride that's just exuding out of him. His pride and arrogance exudes out of him as he denies or, or minimizes his sin in contrast to others. He, he, his arrogance and pride just flows out of him as he looks down on other people. Oh, I'm not like these other people. Jesus says this person will be humiliated, but the one who comes humbly will be exalted. He will be brought up to a position he doesn't deserve. I think a definition, we've used it several times in our study of Luke, a good definition of humility that I think is helpful here. It is not humility to underrate yourself. Humility is to think of yourself yourself if you can as God thinks of you it is to feel that if we have talents God has given them to us and let it be seen that like freight in a vessel they tend to sink us 
low. You see how different this is than the Pharisee? The Pharisee is like, oh man, I tithe on everything I get. I fast twice a week. I'm not like these other folks. Man, his, his, what was going on good in his life, he wasn't thanking God for the work that he did to make that possible. He was standing up and allowing that to buoy him up above everyone else. Spurgeon lets us see that it is like, a, like freight and a vessel. These things tend to sink us low. And the more we have, the lower we ought to lie, he says. See, Jesus says if we carry ourselves in humility, we'll eventually be exalted. But if we exalt ourselves in self-righteousness, we will eventually be humiliated. And then one last one. I think it's not quite as clear, but it's definitely there, is that we do this as an expression of faith, not works. You see, these first four I just gave you, you could build this list and you could say, oh, I do that, I do that, I do that, I do that. Look at how good I am. You could build a law out of them. Well, we're really good at that kind of thing. But the idea here is that it's not the depth of our contrition that matters. It's not, man, every time you see that person, they're just weeping over their sin. You can do that as pharisaically as a person who ignores their sin. But why do you believe your sin is so detestable to God? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the price that God paid that makes your sin so detestable? What attitude in your heart drives you to the place that you see your sin as grievous? Confessing sin, hey, that's common today. It's popular. Preachers even are expected to do it a little bit. Like, this isn't my confessional, right? I'm not supposed to stand up here and lay out all the dirty works, but I'm supposed to make you feel comfortable. I'm supposed to confess my sin. That's the popular view of the day. But we can do that as pharisaically as denying we have it. What drives me in my heart to do that? What do I believe? I, do, do I believe that by doing it, that's what makes me righteous? Or do I do it because I am standing in front of a holy God and can't help but confess I'm not worthy? Asking for mercy, striving to be humble, humble before God. Again, we can practice at this. We can put on a show about this. There's such a thing as false humility. There is such a thing as asking for mercy and it not being a real request. What do we believe about the God who's made his mercy available? What do we believe we deserve what do we believe about what he's done so that he can be merciful toward us? To sum it up, I guess I would just say it like this. To sum it up, how do we get God's mercy instead of judgment when he brings justice and consummates his kingdom? I would say in faith, we pray this sinner's prayer. I'm not talking about the sinner's prayer that, that we throw around in churches. And if you say that prayer, now you're saved. I'm saying in faith, we are grieved by our sin. In faith, we confess our sin. In faith, we ask for God's mercy. And in faith, we walk in the humility that demonstrates we believe we're really sinners. And his promise is, when his justice comes... You will receive justice by receiving his mercy. And Jesus will carry all the weight of your sin and he will put it away. You will never have to deal with it or the fruits that come from it again. So, do you look forward to the coming of the kingdom? Do you, do you believe you'll be celebrating when his kingdom is consummated? 
Why? How can you? Except by his mercy. And finally, let me just finish this one last thought. I told you there was one fourth piece of information I wanted you to think about. Could we possibly look on people with such contempt that we don't walk around giving the knowledge of this mercy away to everyone we see? Could we possibly walk around with our noses so high that we couldn't see the desperate need of our world that longs for justice to whom justice has been made available through Jesus? Could we hold this world in such contempt? Could we walk in such self-righteousness that in some way we think they are more worthy or, or some way less worthy than we? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Even as it confronts us and challenges us, thankful for your warning Spirit, would you move on your people today? Would you move on us that we wouldn't stand in uh, a place of pride and arrogance, but that we would humbly, humbly walk in this world waiting for your kingdom to come? I would ask, Maybe there's people, Father, that have walked in religion all the days of their life who have looked at themselves as righteous because of what they do. They've, they've counted themselves as uh, better than others and they see contempt when they look at the sins of others, but they minimize their own. Would you? Would you move on that person today, Spirit? Would you waken them up to the reality of their circumstance, to the hopelessness of their position, and provide them the hope of your mercy. We don't do this as often, but I just would encourage you to stay in this attitude of prayer. If that's you, whether you recognize yourself as the Pharisee who has been lying to yourself and lying to others, or whether you recognize today you are the tax collector who is unworthy to lift your eyes, who is unworthy to approach the temple, beating your chest over your sin, would you just pray his prayer? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Father, would you move? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.